1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everybody and welcome to The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and today on episode 23 we're going to be talking about Meyer Lansky, one of the most infamous figures in the history of American organized crime. Known as the mob's accountant, Lansky made his fortune in numerous gambling ventures throughout New York, Las Vegas, Florida, and Cuba, but more than that, Lansky rubbed elbows with the revolutionizers of the New York Mafia and really was one himself, and had his finger in some of the most important events in early American Mafia history. But without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Meyer Lansky, whose birth name was Mayor Suchelyansky, was born on July 4th, 1902 in Grodno, Russia, which is now present-day Belarus, to his parents Max and Yeta Suchelyansky, who were both Polish-Jewish. However, Meyer had to go through some hardship early on in life, as around this time, anti-Semitism was and had been running rampant throughout Russia. But this wasn't just name-calling and jeering, this was systemic discrimination that could be traced back to the early 1800s, specifically the reign of Tsar Nicholas I, the Emperor of Russia from 1825 to 1855, who legitimately aimed to destroy Jewish life in the nation. In 1827, Tsar Nicholas ordered the conscription of all Jewish males into the Imperial Russian Army beginning at the age of 12 and as a result, in many Jewish exile communities hailing from the Russian Empire, the 19th century is often referred to as a time where Jews were forced onto the front lines of the army and used as cannon fodder. Despite this, Jews were forbidden from becoming officers. A law that was passed in 1912 even forbade those who were grandchildren of Jews from being officers in the army despite the large numbers of Jews and those of Jewish descent in the military. And even though this culture of Russian anti Semitism was largely ignited by Tsar Nicholas I, it certainly didn't stop with him, and this rampant discrimination for the most part would run wild until at least the 1910s when Jewish self-defense battalions began fighting back. So with Lansky's parents more than likely being subjected to this horrible treatment, they decided to immigrate to the U.S. to spare their child from the same strife. So in 1911, at the age of 9, Meyer Lansky emigrated to the United States through the port of Odessa with his mother Yetta and brother Jacob, and joined his father who had made the move back in 1909 and settled on Grand Street in the heart of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. After making the move stateside, Lansky's father found work as a garment presser in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn. Just a year after coming to America, Meyer started school in 1912 and proved to be a skilled student, covering two grades every year, so by 1914, Lansky had reached the sixth grade, but while he continued to be a good student, he also began getting involved in street corner craps games. Growing up in a Jewish neighborhood surrounded by Irish and Italian neighborhoods, Lansky quickly learned to defend himself and despite his small stature, he immediately established a reputation as someone who would always fight back whether or not he was outnumbered, outmatched, or outsized by the wolf packs of boys from the surrounding neighborhoods preying on Jewish kids. Famously as a young boy, Lansky fiercely defended himself against a group of older Sicilian youths who were roaming the neighborhood looking for Jewish boys to extort protection money from. The leader of the group was so impressed with Lansky's tenacity and fearlessness in standing up to the group that the leader let Lansky off the hook. That day, a lifelong bond of mutual admiration and respect was formed between the two who in later years would become business partners and staunch allies because the leader of the Sicilian gang who attacked Lansky was none other than Charles Lucky Luciano. Also, by this time, Lansky excelled at math and used his natural talents to start up some backroom gambling games in the neighborhood. But more than that, Lansky's career in the streets was elevated when he met a man named Arnold Rothstein. 
Born in 1882, Rothstein would become one of the most influential figures in the history of organized crime. Not only was he widely reputed to have organized corruption in professional athletics, including conspiring to fix the 1919 World Series, but he is also widely credited with having, quote, transformed organized crime from a thuggish activity by hoodlums into a big business run like a corporation with himself at the top. And sometime in the early 1910s, this monumental figure took a young Lansky under his wing and became his mentor. But this wasn't the only long-lasting connection Lansky formed, as around the same time he met a fellow young hood named Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. However, some accounts are varied about Lansky meeting Siegel. One account claims that Lansky met Siegel and Lucky Luciano the same day that Lansky intervened in an altercation between Siegel and Luciano over a prostitute that Luciano was pimping. But the story has never been corroborated in any of Lansky's authorized biographies. According to Lansky himself, he and Siegel met on a street corner in the poverty-stricken Lower East Side of Manhattan when they were both teenagers. While returning home from school one day, Lansky witnessed a street craps game break out into a fight, at which point police whistles were heard, and as the law got close, Meyer forced Siegel to drop a gun that he was trying to brandish. And although Siegel was initially angered with Lansky about losing his gun, after realizing that Lansky might have saved him from a lengthy prison bid, the two formed a friendship that would last for years. And not long after meeting, the two formed a street gang dubbed the Bugs and Meyer Mob. Within the gang, Lansky was considered the brains while Siegel was the brawn, and even though Siegel was the youngest of the gang, he was known around the neighborhood as Vildahaya, of a Yiddish word meaning untamed or animal. He had a reputation for having a short temper, and people described him as being, quote, crazier than a bedbug, which gave him the nickname Bugsy that he grew to hate. After graduating from 8th grade, Lansky took his first job at a tool and die shop, and after work, despite his small stature of about 5'4", he served as a strong-arm man for a gambling establishment, and in this capacity, he was also hired by a union to help solve a labor dispute. But just as Lansky's reputation around New York began to grow, so did Prohibition, and with it, the start of the golden age of organized crime. And by the time Prohibition was in full swing in 1920, Lansky went into the bootlegging business under the protection of his mentor, Arnold Rothstein. Lansky's front was a car and truck rental business he ran with Bugsy Siegel as one of his partners. Lucky Luciano was also a partner in his bootlegging business, and in time, the bootlegging operation run by the Bugs and Meyer mob eventually became one of the most well-known prohibition gangs and lucrative rum-running operations. Also by the early 1920s, Meyer along with Luciano and Siegel had become partners in various other rackets including truck hijacking, labor extortion, and protection. Alongside these activities, he also extended his involvement in craps games, a line of business he would expand following the end of prohibition. Lansky excelled in the world of crime not only because he was bright and tough, but also because he was honest and reliable. He operated gambling as he had bootlegging, and joint venture partnerships in which his main role was to organize the money and the share out. So when Prohibition was repealed in 1933, it was a smooth transition for Lansky as he just began leaning on his gambling interests, the racket that would put him into the history books. In 1933, Lansky pursued his first legitimate gambling venture, and in partnership with two other young mob associates named Joe Adonis and Frank Costello, he opened the Piping Rock Club in the early 1930s. Located on the north side of Union Avenue near Saratoga Lake, the Piping Rock Club once had 12 roulette wheels, 3 craps tables, 1 car table, and a birdcage. However, much bigger changes were coming from Meyer Lansky in the early 1930s with the Castle Morese War looming. Since the Castle Morese War, something we've talked about a lot on the show, the short and quick of it is that it was a bloody power struggle for control of the Italian-American Mafia that took place in New York City from February 1930 until April 15, 1931 between two factions led by mobsters Joe the Boss Masseria and Salvatore Marin. Zano, respectively. Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello were all part of the Masseria faction as they worked under him, but by the winter of 1930, the Masseria faction had been decimated by betrayal and murder. 
So given the worsened situation, Masseria allies, Lucky Lugiano and Vito Genovese started communicating with Salvatore Maranzano, and the two eventually agreed to betray Masseria if Maranzano would end the war, at which point a deal was struck where Luciano would arrange for Masseria to be murdered and Maranzano would bring the Castellamarese War to an end. So on April 15th of 1931, Masseria was killed at a restaurant in Coney Island, Brooklyn, with the gunmen reportedly being Albert Anastasia, Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Bugsy Siegel. With the death of Masseria, the war ended, at which point Maranzano organized the Mafia in New York City using a clear structure and hierarchy by dividing the main Italian gangs in New York into what we know today as the Five Families. But not long after organizing the Five Families, Salvatore Maranzano declared himself boss of all bosses, presiding over all Five Families as the ultimate power within the New York mob, and following this move, Maranzano proved to be even more greedy and hidebound than Masseria had been. Realizing this, the group of Vito Genovese, Lucky Luciano, and Mirelansky began plotting against Maranzano, but the boss somehow caught wind of this dissension and ordered Genovese and Luciano to a meeting where they likely would have been killed. So instead of marching to their death, they decided to send a hit team, and on September 10, 1931, Salvatore Maranzano was shot and stabbed to death in his Manhattan office by a team of Jewish hitmen recruited by Lansky, which included Samuel Levine, Bo Weinberg, and Bugsy Siegel. Now with both Maranzano and Masseria out of the way, it was easier for the Young Turks led by Luciano to assume control of the way things functioned in New York City, and the first agenda was the reformation and restructuring of the American Mafia. Luciano envisioned the future of the American Mafia in the form of a major corporation which he believed would increase cooperation, reduce conflict, and ensure plain sailing governance by the Mafia as a whole. Since Maranzano had formed a basic structure that was in the process of being put into effect, Luciano decided to retain the concept to a large extent, owing to his clear disregard for orthodox ideologies that didn't have any profitable consequences, Luciano allowed for more flexibility in the structure allowing for the inclusion of other ethnic groups like Jews to involve themselves with the five families. And all this advancement eventually led to the formation of the National Crime Syndicate created by Luciano, Lansky, and others. It was a multi-ethnic, loosely connected confederation of several criminal organizations. It mostly consisted of and was led by the closely connected Italian-American mafia in the U.S. and Jewish mobsters to a lesser extent. It also involved other criminal organizations such as the Irish mob and African-American crime groups. Lansky was subsequently deemed to be the financial mastermind behind the syndicate's accounting, with his earnings reportedly reaching hundreds of millions of dollars, though the figure has been disputed. But of course a syndicate of this size needed to be protected, and that's where Lansky and Murder Inc. would come in. The Bugs and Meyer mob was the direct predecessor to Murder Inc., as the group would commission Jewish gangsters to carry out hits on behalf of others. So with this experience, after the National Crime Syndicate was founded, Siegel and Lansky disbanded the Bugs and Meyer mob to help form Murder Incorporated. Other than this, however, Lansky was becoming a heavyweight in his own right, and after Prohibition's demise in 1933, Lansky set about diversifying his business operations, attempting to invest in both the illegitimate and legitimate enterprises. But of course, his primary source of income remained gambling, and throughout the early to mid-1930s, he opened up several upscale gambling locations in upstate New York, New Orleans, and Florida, as well as began making inroads into gambling operations in Cuba. He also invested heavily in dog tracks in Hallandale, Florida, the base of his gambling universe. But Lansky's biggest innovation was that he never cheated his customers. He understood that since the odds were already in the house's favor, it made no sense to rip off the clientele, and Lansky enforced a zero-tolerance policy towards cheating, especially among his dealers and the rest of his employees. The second principle that kept his business intact was that he did not, ironically enough, use violence. Instead, he utilized mob protection and bribes against law enforcement, and this ensured that the establishments were secure from other crime figures and the police alike. This along with his mathematical wizardry, gambling integrity, business skills, and especially his ability to curry the favor of local mobsters to secure his locations, and through bribing local law enforcement, Lansky became one of the major players in the illicit and growing gambling industry. And it was no problem for Lansky to launder the enormous profits coming from these ventures. 
To protect himself from prosecution, he transferred illicit funds from his casino empire to a Swiss bank account since the 1934 Swiss Banking Act allowed anonymity. He even went on to buy his own offshore bank in Switzerland so that he could use it to launder money through a network of shell and holding companies, but Lansky was about to get involved in affairs outside of business. During the 1930s, there was a burgeoning American Nazi movement throughout the United States, and when the Nazi rallies were publicized, there were often protests particularly from Jewish groups. And although it was kept quiet, mainstream Jewish leaders actively sought the help of Jewish gangsters to use militant tactics against the Nazis by disrupting these events with stink bombs, fists, and lead pipes. While Abner Longy's Willman led these efforts in Newark, New Jersey, Lansky led them across the Hudson in New York City. Even though Lansky was offered money and legal assistance to cease his efforts against the Nazi rallies, he refused the money, saying, quote, We wanted to teach them a lesson. We wanted to show them that the Jews would not always sit back and accept insults. For Lansky, it was personal. The attacks were carried out with military precision, usually involving gangsters both planted inside and outside the events to trap the Nazis. At a prearranged time, the signal would be given and all hell would break loose. As Lansky described one such event, he said, quote, We attacked them in the hall and threw some of them out the windows. There were fistfights all over the place. Most of the Nazis panicked and ran out. We chased them and beat them up, and some of them were out of action for months. There were no killings or permanent injuries of these events, only dislocated limbs, bloodied heads, and damage requiring dental work. But the late 30s and 40s weren't all violence for Meyer, and in 1941, he and a partner named Bill Sims were invited to operate Greyhound Racing in Council Bluffs, Iowa to help repay a municipal debt from a failed fairground project. Three years later, Lansky had begun to work on rebuilding Cuba's ailing gambling business, along with racetrack owner Lou Smith, who had a contract with the Cuban government to clean up and operate the low racing on the island. Lansky reorganized casino gambling with personnel brought over from New York, which marked the first time that Lansky could work as a gambling entrepreneur in an open and legal fashion without the need for protection. However, before and during World War II, Meyer Lansky's organization of Italian and Jewish gunmen often put their skills to use against Nazi sympathizers in the United States. He was therefore prepared when the American government approached him to join the war effort. Lansky was too small and old by 1941 to enlist, which he had attempted to do, but the U.S. naval forces had another job waiting for him. Lansky and his group of gunmen, who had now created a reputation as Nazi hunters on the streets of Manhattan, followed up on tips from the Navy and FBI which concerned potential Nazi sympathizers in a mission known fittingly as Operation Underworld. Reportedly, no one outside of the FBI knows what happens to the individuals noted in those tips, but it's safe to assume that Lansky's war efforts on the street proved successful. During World War II, Lansky was also instrumental in helping the Office of Naval Intelligence and recruiting criminals to watch out for German infiltrators and submarine sabotagers. He helped arrange a deal with the government via a high-ranking United States Navy official which secured the release of Lucky Luciano from prison on prostitution charges in exchange the Mafia would provide security for the warships that were being built along the docks in New York Harbor. German submarines were sinking Allied ships in great numbers along the eastern seaboard in the Caribbean and there was a great fear of attack or sabotage by Nazi sympathizers. Solansky connected the ONI with Luciano, who reportedly instructed Joseph Lanza, a Luciano family mobster who controlled the Fulton fish market to prevent sabotage on the New York waterfront. But as soon as World War II was over, Lansky would have a big problem to deal with, a problem named Bugsy Siegel. In the mid-1940s, Siegel was lining things up in Las Vegas while his lieutenants worked on a business policy to secure all gambling in Los Angeles. Then in May 1946, he decided to muscle his way into a casino called the Flamingo. With the Flamingo, Siegel could supply the gambling, the best liquor and food, and the biggest entertainers at a reasonable price. He believed that these attractions would lure not only high rollers, but also thousands of vacationers willing to gamble 50 or $100, so the, so the owner of the casino was eventually coerced into selling all stakes in the Flamingo under the threat of death and went into hiding in Paris for a while, and from that point on, the Flamingo became syndicate run. And for the most part, this was all well and good. The problems didn't start coming until after the extortion, because as soon as Siegel acquired the Flamingo, he began a massive spending spree. 
He demanded the finest building that money could buy at a time of post-war shortages, and as costs soared, Siegel's checks began to bounce. So by October of 1946, the Flamingo's costs were over $4 million, worth about $60 million today. And by 1947, the costs soared to well over $6 million, worth about $90 million today, a decent portion of which was provided by Meyer Lansky. But thankfully, by late November of that year, the work was nearly finished. However, it was then that problems really began for Siegel, because even though problems with the outfit's wire service had cleared up in Nevada and Arizona, the problems remained in California as Siegel refused to report his business. But more than that, he later announced to his colleagues that he was running the California syndicate by himself and that he would return the loans he took from them in his own time. And despite Siegel's defiance to mob bosses, they were patient with him because he had always proven to be a valuable asset. And on December 26, 1946, the Flamingo opened, at which time only the casino, lounge, theater, and restaurant were finished. And although local people attended the opening, few celebrities did. But when the patrons arrived, they were greeted with a construction noise and a lobby draped with drop claws. The casino's air conditioning system even broke down regularly. And while the gambling tables were open, the luxury rooms that would have served as the lure for people to stay and gamble were not ready. So as word of losses made their way back to Siegel during the evening, he began to become irate and verbally abusive, throwing out at least one family in as an insult after two weeks, the Flamingo's gambling tables were $275,000 in the red and the entire operation was subsequently shut down in late January 1947. And after being granted a second chance, Siegel knuckled down and did everything in his power to turn the Flamingo into his success by making renovations and obtaining good press. He even went as far as to hire future newspaper publisher Hank Greenspun as a publicist, and the Flamingo reopened on March 1st, 1947 with Meyer Lansky present, and began turning a profit. But unfortunately, by the time the profits began improving, the mob bosses above Siegel that had funded the Flamingo were tired of waiting for a return on their investment and decided he needed to go. So on the night of June 20th, 1947, as Siegel sat with his associate Alan Smiley in his girlfriend Virginia Hill's home reading a newspaper, an unknown assailant fired at him through the window with a 30 caliber M1 carbine, hitting him many times including twice in the head, killing him instantly. Despite this, no one was charged with killing Siegel and the crime remains officially unsolved. And even though there are hundreds of theories surrounding what happened to Siegel, there's only one that seems the most credible to me, and that is the theory that Siegel's death was due to his excessive spending and possible theft of money from the mob. In 1946, a meeting was held with high-ranking members of the National Crime Syndicate in Havana, Cuba, so that Lucky Luciano, who by this point had been exiled to Italy, could attend and participate. And one of the pressing business matters at this conference was what to do with Bugsy Siegel, and a contract on Bugsy's life was as a result, and it's believed that Lansky was compelled to give the final okay on eliminating Siegel due to his long relationship with him and the stature he had within the organization. But Lansky's luck wasn't about to change just yet, and towards the end of the 1940s, the climate around illegal gambling changed, at which point citizens' crime commissions and the press began to expose wide-open gambling and corruption. And as a result, Lansky received media attention for the first time in his criminal career, and his name and picture began to appear in the papers. So as a result, in 1950, Meyer Lansky was called before the Kefauver Committee to testify in his relations with Frank Costello and other underworld figures. During the same year, he pleaded guilty to felony gambling charges in Hallandale, Florida, where two of his co-owned clubs had to be closed down. And in 1952, following a grand jury investigation, he was sentenced to three months in jail for his gambling activities in Saratoga Springs, the only prison time he would ever serve. But as soon as he got out, his luck would finally turn around, as he was about to make the move to Cuba, a change that would really make Lansky infamous. In the 1940s and early 50s, Lansky invested heavily in Cuban gambling operations, most famously at the Hotel Nacional in Havana, Cuba. He was also said to have heavily bribed corrupt Cuban politicians and officials who consistently took kickbacks in large percentages of the profits from the casinos. And this led to Cuban President Fulgencio Batista inviting Lansky to become an advisor on gambling reform in 1955 and to carry out on a larger scale a cleanup job like the one he had performed in the late 1930s. 
Immediately, Lansky himself took over as operator of the newly established casino at the Hotel Nacional, which was managed by International Hotels, Inc., a subsidiary of Pan Am. And then, just a year later, in 1956, he started work on his own combination hotel and casino, the Riviera. The Riviera opened in December 1957 with a floor show headed by actress Ginger Rogers that was carried in part on American Network Television, and of course the hotel casino turned out to be an immense success. And it was said that during these years, Lansky had a close relationship with Fulgencio Batista, who looked to Lansky as his gambling czar, an advisor who Batista trusted for his acumen in running gambling operations. And ironically, it was Lansky's honest and clean gambling philosophy that the thoroughly corrupt Batista admired most about him. Also during this time, Lansky got himself into legitimate ventures like cigarette machines, jukeboxes, and a short-lived investment in a company called Consolidated Television, which was selling TVs to bars. His lifelong friends Jimmy Blue Eyes Aloe and Frank Costello were partners in this business, which Lansky freely discussed when he testified in front of the Kefauver Committee in 1951. But while things were going good for Lansky, it was all about to change when the 1959 Cuban Revolution and the rise of Fidel Castro changed the climate for mob investments in Cuba. On New Year's Eve 1958, while Batista was preparing to flee to the Dominican Republic, Lansky was celebrating the $3 million he had made in the first year of operations at the Riviera. However, many of the casinos, including several of Lansky's, were looted and destroyed that night. Then on January 8, 1959, Fidel Castro marched into Havana and took over, setting up command posts in the Hilton while Lansky had fled the day before. And in October 1960, Castro nationalized all the island nation's hotel and casinos and outlawed gambling, which wiped out Lansky's asset base and revenue streams. He lost an estimated $7 million worth about $70 million today, so with the additional crackdown on casinos in Miami, Lansky was forced to depend on his Las Vegas revenue streams. All Meyer had left was his gambling interest in Nevada. He had invested in Bugsy Siegel's Flamingo Hotel Casino, but had never been actively involved with the management and had visited Las Vegas only infrequently. Nevertheless, Lansky held a crucial position as the conduit for Las Vegas investments worth $2.2 million, yielding just over $1 million cash income from skimmed profits every year. For some of his money seems to have been the owner, and for some simply the custodian on behalf of two separate shareholdings. But this involvement ended with the selling of his Las Vegas casinos due to the heat on Lansky that accumulated towards the end of the 1960s and would have to scrape by with his interest in loan sharking and numbers rackets. However, in 1970, Lansky was facing tax evasion charges, at which point he fled to Israel and sought to remain there, citing the law of return which gave Israeli citizenship to anyone of Jewish heritage. But Lansky was denied permanent residency due to his criminal record and deported back to the U.S. in 1972. Meanwhile, the FBI had been closely monitoring Lansky for years but couldn't find any evidence that linked him to a major crime. Despite that, when he returned to America in November 1972 after a three-day flight, he was subsequently arrested upon reaching Miami, Florida. Once back in the U.S., Lansky faced a series of indictments, one for tax evasion based on testimony provided by mafia informant Vinny Teresa, who claimed to have delivered profits from gambling directly to Lansky in Florida. But he escaped conviction when the jury found him not guilty. Then, the last case brought against Lansky, which pertained to the skimming of Las Vegas casino profits, was dismissed by the judge because of Lansky's poor health and age in 1976. After this final trial, Lansky retired and spent his last years quietly at his home in Miami Beach until his death at the age of 81 years old from lung cancer in a Miami hospital on July 15, 1983. But that's really all I have for you guys today. I hope everybody thoroughly enjoyed today's episode and tunes back in next week for episode 24. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the podcast, it'd be great if you could follow, like, and share the podcast as well as the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Blackhand Pod. But with that said, I hope everybody has a great rest of their day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.